Well, I don't. 40 seconds, I think, is 11 o'clock now. Yeah. Windsor, Windsor, Ascot, Ascot Maidenhead, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Bracknell Wokingham, Wokingham, Henley, Henley Reading. Reading. Okay! Ta-da! The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Good morning, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. And we'll be chatting with some, the organisers of the Henley Literary Festival. Plus news, reviews and more. Good morning. You're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Over the next hour, we're going to be keeping you up to date with news from the world of books, new releases, bestsellers and recommendations of some great books to read. So thank you for joining us today. We've got a great show coming up. We've been joined by Harriet Reed Ryan, who's the organiser and programme director of the Henley Literary Festival, which runs from the 2nd to the 10th of October this year. She'll be telling us about the fiction programme at the festival, which I must admit looks amazing. And Julia and I have been looking at the natural world and spotting a few books to recommend on this essential topic. And once again, we've been scouring the books to spot interesting book news. And just to remind you, if you've forgotten already, you are listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley and beyond, because I believe I think we're stretching over to Texas today. And don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. And if you have any favourite authors you want to tell us about, you've got a great book that you're reading and you're just bursting to tell us, get your fingers on the keyboard and get tapping and send an email to me at uh, julian at river.radio. I'll repeat that. That's julian at river.radio. And we'd like to uh, include that in a future programme. So don't be shy, get in touch. Excellent. So let's begin with a roundup of those interesting tidbits that we've spotted in the press about books. Now, as you know, it's a truth universally acknowledged that Hollywood producers in possession of a good fortune must be in want of an original idea. Indeed. Yes, that's the start of Pride and Prejudice and the love match between Elizabeth Bennet and Mr Darcy. And it was just too good to align to refuse because it appears that the TV success of Bridgerton on Netflix last year Mm. has left Hollywood producers in all of a lather to get their hands on more Regency capers. Or at least are using Jane Austen as a base for a whole host of TV shows that are currently in the making. So do look out for a new series of Bridgerton next year. And two versions, would you believe, of Persuasion are currently being filmed. Heavens. And uh, and some slightly dodgier options, such as a new (laughs) dating show called Pride and Prejudice, an experiment in romance, where I think suitors are dressed up in bicorn hats and flirt by handwritten letters. So basically it's Regency porn, is it? Yes, well, I hope not. (laughs) Anyway, for this one, I'm just going back to the books, I think, and enjoy them all in their subtlety. 
Indeed, I think that's the best thing. And talking about films based on on classic yeah. books, did you did you see that Amazon is about to start producing a new one million dollar uh, six series drama based on the fantasy world of Middle Earth? Wow! Uh, mm, and it's set thousands of years before the events of the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now, the good news uh, is that its filming will will take place um, in the very environment that was in, that inspired Tolkien to write about the books here in the UK. And of course, you know that Tolkien was a professor of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford University. But I don't, uh, but have you know, did you know also that, of course, this has caused a bit of consternation in New Zealand because, of course, all the Hobbit series was filmed over there. And now they've got all their lips pursed because it's being moved over to the UK yes, for this new series. I know, mm. but that's good, I think, because it is a, it is a British Exactly, absolutely, yes, we're British. Did you know that The Ring found, which sort of inspired Tolkien to write uh, Lord of the Rings, was actually a Roman ring that was found in um, in Britain, and you can actually see it at the Vine, uh, which is in Hampshire, which isn't isn't so far away. They've which is a... which is in fact what our author Mike Brown was telling us about when he came to talk about his book. That's right. Yeah. So it's it's detailed in uh, Roman Britain where to find it, and basically right. but the story very quickly is that a, a Roman curse was found, saying basically Silvianus um, has lost a ring, and I curse. Um, Oh, no, sorry. A ring was found saying this is the ring of Silvianus. And then totally sort of hundreds of miles away, there was a dig being done by a very eminent uh, archaeologist. And they found a curse which basically said uh, Silvianus has lost his ring. And whoever has it, um, I sort of I curse you and want your left leg to fall off sort of thing. And, oh, right. uh, <laughs> and the, the people who found the curse and the, uh, they immediately associated it with the ring because they knew about it. And they gave the curse to to Tolkien um, with as the oh, professor that was fancy. Of Anglo-Saxon uh, no just to just to look at and to, to just look right. at the writing um, and that's where his inspiration was that's amazing fantastic absolutely yes right so a memoir a memoir for Paul, uh, Paul McCartney is about to be published this November mm-hmm. so excitingly for all those Beatles fans out there it includes the lyrics from an unknown song so Mac has obviously been asked previously to write his memoir, but he's been lacking his usual diaries to crib from. But what he does have is he has his songwriting archive. So the book's called The Lyrics, which will be published in November. And Paul McCartney traces his life from boyhood to the present day through the lyrics of 154 iconic songs, together with commentary and never-before-seen photographs. Um, So it sounds absolutely fantastic and includes this unknown song, Tell Me Who He Is. And um, it was interestingly that uh, John Lennon used to call quite a number of uh, McCartney's um, songs um, called... He called these songs granny songs. And, <laughs> and you can see why, can't you? Well, yes, I suppose so. You can. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so Paul McCartney called the... Uh, sorry, John Lennon used to call a lot of John Lennon's... Uh, Paul McCartney songs granny music. So I'm not sure whether it fits into this granny music thing or not, but we will have to wait and see. 
Yeah, maybe so, indeed. Now, it was a very sad day for children's books um, at the moment because Jill Murphy, who was the author of the Worst Witch series, has died recently. However, she's left us um, a fabulous legacy of books which inspired children's for generations. Absolutely. And, and it's really interesting. She began writing and illustrating the Worst Witch, um, which is, she's called Mildred Hubble, um, and all about her classmates. And it was inspired partly... Hey, uh, and, ooh, and, Sorry, that was ooh. my fault. Do apologise. Oh, I'd say. Sorry. Carry on. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. The, uh, so uh, the, the worst, which is, um, it was inspired by Mallory Towers, which um, she was reading. And um, uh, so Jill was uh, started writing when she was 15 years old. It was first published in 1974. Uh, and the last book in the series was First Prize for the Worst Witch, which came out uh, in 2018. Um, and in an interview, she said <laughs> it was based a little bit on her school, which was a nursery line convent in Wimbledon, where all the nuns wore black and all you could see was their faces. Oh, dear. And this, yeah, and they had this extraordinary habit of popping up behind you just as you were about to talk about them. Oh, so I, I think, think all that, teachers can do that, yeah. can't they? Well, they can, they can. But I think probably sort of a nun in black habit was probably <laughs> even more frightening. Um, so the, this, the series, of course, probably could have been an inspiration for another school by the name of Hogwarts. Who knows? Who, who knows? But her books... Her books have been uh, adapted for television and has, she's also been, she also wrote an award-winning series, um, which was The Large Family. Ah, that's about two elephants, wasn't it? And all, all it is. Children, yeah, exactly. Yes. The, yeah. And that sold over 5 million copies, um, as well as being adapted for television. Excellent. That is a very sad day then. She was real, yeah. real success. Absolutely, she was. So we've spoken in the past about the perennial success that cookery books achieve, and mostly those of TV chefs and bakers. Uh, but this time, a blogger has just joined these heady heights with her book, Jane's Patisserie. And it's jumped over these stalwarts to become the fastest selling baking book ever, selling more than 44,000 copies in the first three days. That's just amazing. Good grief. Yes. So she's, Heavens above. So she started doing a blog during lockdown and she spotted that people were interested in baking with their favourite chocolates. And uh, she did a cheesecake with Rolos. Ooh, and lovely. It, and it just went viral one weekend. So amongst all the usual fare of lemon drizzle cake and carrot cake and things, she's added things like Toblerone Rocky Road and mm. cream egg layer cake and galaxy cupcakes. No doubt it's uh, the reason for her success. Yes, indeed. Well, and, and, and hopefully the cream egg layer cake will, of course, be an annual event around Easter because that's when the eggs come out. Absolutely, um, That'd yes. be fantastic, yeah. Well, 100 years ago, a boy named Christopher Robin was given a bear for his first birthday um, and his father called it Winnie the Pooh. Um, and then a, a rather depressed-looking donkey followed that Christmas. <laughs> then a piglet, a kangaroo, and a tigger. I know all where this the, is going. <laughs> yeah, I know. And all of found their way via A.A. Mills, agent and publisher, to the New York Public Library. Oh, gosh, now, they're not in Britain. No, no, I know. So it, so we have to trek over to New York when we're allowed okay. and so, so pay reverence over there. Uh, but our, our famous um, uh, Anglophile, um, oh, sorry, I beg your pardon, Actophile. Or, um, yes, which, Octophile. Which is an, uh, Octophile. Oh, yes, Octophile. Um, 
Mm. Anybody would think you're reading this for the first time, Julie. You would, wouldn't you? Yes, exactly. Well, an octophile is actually a lover or a collector of teddy bears. And this famous guy is Charles Brandreth, who owns the original fuzzy bear that was given to him by Jim Henson, um, who was the creator of the Muppets. Uh Um, Or we can indeed head down to the Hundred Acre Wood once more and enjoy reading Winnie the Pooh in all its glory, just because we can. And there was also another quite well-known, well, there's a well-known actor called uh, Peter Bull, was also a collector of uh, of teddy bears, who also wrote a book um, called Bear With Me. Now, Peter Bull was um, uh, a good character actor, played uh, Mr Thwackham in Tom Jones and a various number of films. Right. So there are a lot of famous people that collect teddy bears. They are now, indeed. And now we know that that word is octophile. Oh, yes, indeed. Is it octophile or octophile? Octophile, yeah. <laughs> yes. Or Arctic Roll, whichever you like. <laughs> and again, just to remind you, in case you've forgotten, you're listening to uh, Turning Pages with Heather Adams and Julian, and thank you for listening. And coming up, we'll be looking at the natural world and the books that we've been reading to understand this marvellous world we live in. But first, Heather has been chatting to Harriet Reed Ryan, who is the programme director for the Henley Literary Festival, um, which will be taking place between the 2nd and 10th of October of this year. And she has some hot tips of which tickets you should be buying. And this week, Heather's been talking to Harriet about a fiction top picks for the festival. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me back again. Oh, not at all. I have been looking through the programme for the Henley Literary Festival and I've got to say it's absolutely fabulous. Well Thanks. done. I'm really proud of it, actually. I think in a very hard year, we're in a very good position in that lots of people have written books. Lots of people were sat at computers last year and always not much to do. So that's definitely helped us. So it's brilliant. We've got kind of over 130 events and I think they're probably our best 130 we've ever had really in that sense. I've got got to say, I'm looking through it and I just... There is just so many that I need to go and see. And I'm saying, oh, I can take this friend to this one. Oh, and this person will love that one. And it's just such a variety. It's definitely been our most broadest programme ever like there's been a real sort of flurry of tickets across all of them really rather than quite often you have some very big headliners and they get all of it whereas actually this year obviously a few have sold out but really as a rule there's still lots of tickets available for brilliant names I think in previous years would have already sold out by now. So what we're going to talk to you is luckily I'm going to have you for two weeks which is fantastic so I thought we'd split it up and we'd talk first of all we'd talk about novels if that's all right so talk about our fiction authors authors well I've kind of collated a few together to talk oh, about the ones I'm really really excited about is I thought I'd start with the virtual ones so in September we're doing virtual events every Monday evening there's a bit of a kind of nod to last year for people who can't be here and this these people definitely can't be here because they're both based in America we've got Britt Burnett in conversation with Curtis Sittenfeld which is I think a bit of a coup really to have these two absolutely brilliant American novelists Britt Burnett's coming with The Vanishing Half which was shortlisted for the 2021 Women's Fiction Prize and Curtis and Seth Siddenfield's coming with Rodham, which is that alternative history novel that considers how things might have been if Hillary Rodham had turned down Bill Clinton. Um, I am in 5% into Brit Burnett at the moment and um, loving it already. All I hear is amazing things about this book. It's done so well um, and I can't wait to read it. And one of the girls in the office is reading Rodham and said it was absolutely brilliant. It's such a sort of clever concept. So those two are coming live from America, which will be really exciting. Then on the first day of the festival, we've got Sebastian Folks from yes. Snow Country. Um, he came before, complete sellout brilliant speaker such a warm man and just such an interesting talk so his uh, novel is uh, based in 1930s vienna 
Yeah. Oh, actually, Saturday, that same Saturday, the 2nd of October, we've got Elizabeth Day, the person who's renowned for her How to Fail podcast and the oh, yeah. Daily uh, Mail on Sunday columnist. She's got her latest novel, Magpie, which is a psycholo- psychological thriller, Motherhood, Power and Jealousy. Oh, that's great. Yes. Which I think will be really good. On a really nice panel we've got on Tuesday, 5th of October, October with local author James Scudamore. He his wife runs an Ettlebed Creamery actually, and they're based in Ettlebed. And he's with speaking with Monique Roffey, and both of them they're like the prize winner panel. They've both won prizes. Um, English Monsters came out last year to really good acclaim by James Scudamore. And Monique Roffey's written The Mermaid of Black Conch, the book of the year 2020. Yes, yeah, she's and had a fantastic that, year, hasn't she? Yeah, and that book has been everywhere. It's one yeah. of the ones we, we've done on the Sunday, got a, another returning visitor in Kate Moss with her historical fiction novel. She's also going to be touching on her non-fiction as well, which she's written about Karen. And I had a podcast with her the other day, and she's just such a brilliant speaker. And that's all about looking after her mother, isn't it? As yeah, she, and she's um, in City of Tears, which is the fiction. But yeah, I think they're going to touch on that. And it it was looking after her mother-in-law. She's come before and we just got some brilliant quotes from her events where she said, you know, she never read a book with a um, heroine who carried a sword. So she decided to write one. There's something sort of very, very powerful about her. So I really, everyone who came out of hers, I think she came two years ago, said she was just absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, it's really important, isn't it, in the literary festival that they're not just good books, they're also good presenters. Yeah, absolutely. And really hold a room. I think it's a really lovely opportunity. Lots of people who haven't been before always say, like, what is it? But, you know, you're basically listening in on a conversation between two people. And it's such a sort of, I guess it's basically what podcasts are now in that sense. But you're there live and you can feel it and you can be part of it and you can ask questions and all of that side. Yeah. Now, a few other novelists I've got who perhaps aren't naturally considered novelists is uh, Mel Gideroik of Mel and Sue. I read this book. It's really fun. I thought it was very, I couldn't, you know, I wanted to get to bed every night to read it. Her book's called The Best Things and it's about a mother in, and it's very, very funny. Ruth Jones, who is also better known for Gavin and Stacey. Yes. Um, yes. Having written that, this is her, I think like the second or third novel. It's called Us Three. I haven't read this one, but her previous ones have been absolutely brilliant. She's, she's a screenwriter. I mean, you know, she's brilliant, brilliant at writing. So that's going to be a great uh, one. And then Robert Webb, who obviously is known for being in The Peep Show, his book I keep on recommending to everyone because I completely love it. Like, I just thought it was absolutely... It was, oh, it was just really clever. It's got a little bit... It's a very clever concept. I don't want to give anything away, but it's got a little bit of the Matt Haig-ness about it. Right. And, you know, a bit of a time-travelling element. And it's just absolutely brilliant. So that was a sort of a few that I picked out to tell you about. But we've got... So I couldn't fit them all in. We've got some. De- we've got two debut panels, one with Naomi Ishiguru in it and another one with Miles Jupp. And um, has come before, been brilliant, but actually is coming with his first day. Jane Fallon and Daisy Buchanan together. I don't know if you've ever read any of theirs, but I loved both i've read both of theirs i'm trying to read one from each panel and then i by accident read jane fallon days kind of straight after each other so they're going together but oh (laughs) the themes together are brilliant they're going to be great together and daisy buchanan's insatiable is quite naughty but very very good and i just love jane fallon's got a real art of writing a kind of a page turner that you really want to read yeah so, so you, you were talking about um miles jump before and you've got book club sunday haven't you so tell yeah. me tell me more about book club sunday so are you targeting book clubs for that 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I we will do we will do sort of mass bookings for any event, so we're not particularly targeting it for that. But I don't. I'm in a book club. I love my book club more than anything. It's the one night of the month I look forward to the most, and I think it's really nice to be able to go and do something together. My book club are actually all going to come to Elizabeth Day. We've all just concluded, and whether I'll be allowed to sit with them, I don't know. But if I'm free, but yeah, book club Sunday's got Kathy Bretton Burke and Miles Jupp and Sarah Shafari. And as I said, they were actual debuts that Sunday. They've both written other things before Kathy and Miles, but never a fiction. So that's yes, that yeah. one. Yes. But that's a great idea to encourage book clubs to uh, to come along together. Because I always think whenever I talk to lots of people, they say, oh, I'm too busy to read a novel. And actually, my answer would be go to the literary fe- the um, Henley Literary Festival. And actually, you don't need to read the novel. You can hear about it and enjoy no. it just as Absolutely. And I always say that when I'm reading and I'm really into a good book and I want to go to bed to read it, my mental health is much better. I mean, yes. you know, going and everything is much better for me as well. But I really notice that so much is given to the idea that we, you know, should do running and everything, you know, and exercise and all of that for our mental health, which I completely agree with. But I do think being into a good book for me is one of the top priorities. Yeah. It's like meditation. Good. Absolutely. And it's a world away from your world. It's a lot of audiobooks. I've got three children and obviously I run this. So it's it's hard to find the time. So I do it with audio and Kindle. I, that's yeah. the only way I can read. So I'm either listening or reading. Always um, are good. Yeah, exactly. So the other thing I wanted to uh, just ha- mention is your crime and wine, which I've, oh, I've yeah. been to before. So tell everybody about that. So Crime and Wine started years ago. We've got a brilliant sponsor in Lathwaite's and I think that's sort of how we came up with it. They used to be our headline sponsor. So we just sort of thought, oh, what goes together? Books and wine and crime and wine. And now it's become very much um, in our sort of, in the programme every year. And it this year we've got Nikki French, who's actually a husband and wife team, which I don't think I even knew. I, I've got to be honest, I'm not brilliant with crime because I get too scared before. But <laughs> so they're coming back, and I didn't realise that they were, but they're huge. And you know, as you walk, when we used to walk through airports, do you remember those days? Those were the ones that you could always see. It was always the Nikki French sat out there. So we've got them, and then I, we've also got a local crime and wine one, which is called Locally Criminal, which is with Robert Thorogood, who is based in Marlow. That's right, the Marlow Murder Club. Absolutely. Robert Thorogood is joined by Jenny Quintana, who is based in Reading. So it was a really lovely idea that we've got these brilliant crime writers right in our in our neck of the woods. So how nice to do an event with them. And Nikki French, who's also that's on the Wednesday the sixth, the locally. And the crime and wine, the traditional one, is on Tuesday, the 5th of October. And that's with Nikki French and Imrad Mahmood, who's written I Know What I Saw, where a homeless former banker witnesses a murder, but no one will believe him. Mm, And they're actually being interviewed by Cheska Major, who's another local author. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Fantastic. So um, who are you most looking forward to uh, to seeing? Ooh, on the are you allowed a favourite? Well, I feel like I also haven't mentioned people like Geoffrey Archer in fiction. Well, you've got Jeffla. Yes, we've got, who's actually our biggest selling um, author we've ever had. And we have had Grisham and people like that. And actually he's sold more than any of those. So I am really looking forward to having him. I think that he's selling very well. I think lots of people are. I have to say probably Robert Webb. I just found the book brilliant. I, it's, it's had brilliant reviews. I just hadn't had it recommended to me as much as I have other books. And I'm now recommending it to everyone. Because I just think it was a really well-written, a really joyful thing to read on a on a holiday if we ever go on them but so that would probably be my my recommendation we've also got alexander mccall smith coming for the first time 
on at the Friday night as well. I mean, as I said, this program is just you can't you can't move for all of these brilliant names, which is a lovely position to be in. So, that is fantastic. So remind everybody, how do we find out, how do we find the programme? What are the dates and how do we book? Henleyliteraryfestival.co.uk gives you all of the information. For You can either give the office a call and we will send you out a programme or there are programmes hopefully all around Henley and the surrounding areas. You can definitely get one from Bell Bookshop. And yeah, you just can book on the website or give us a bell and all the details are on the website fantastic well i've got to say from from that collection alone you've already given me lots of other ones that i'm just going to have to book for so thank you very much i'm sorry i could talk for hours so i'm sorry i didn't you've got to pick up a program to see it all yes absolutely (laughs) thank you very much harriet So that's an amazing collection of, uh, of, of authors that she's got there and that's just as i say the fiction element we've got the non-fiction that'll be next week Oh, I can't hear you at the moment, Julian. So um, I don't. The reason know. being is because I turned the mic off. That's ah, why. that's why. <laughs> <laughs> so you probably just saw me sort of chatter, chattering away I did, across yes. there, right? Now I was saying yes. The lit- the, the non-fiction side. I looked at the program um, last week. It was absolutely crammed. Some really good uh, good stuff. Um, and there's one that I, I uh, took my eye, which uh, was Simon Heffer's book on Chips Cannon. Ah, yes. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, re- yeah. it's really good. So just to repeat, you can find the programme from the website, Henley Literary Festival, all one word, so that's henleyliteraryfestival.co.uk. And the festival runs from the 2nd to the 10th of October in person. And there are actually virtual events running every Monday in September as well. So do take a look at the programme and book your tickets as soon as possible, because I know quite a number of them are selling out. Because what they've done is they've decided to t- uh, cap ticket sales at 70% capacity to give everyone elbow room so it's going to be a really a really lovely festival so I think it's encouraging everyone to uh, to join in yes in fact probably they say they're being very polite about the elbow room I think that what they're saying is going to be a very exclusive oh, event absolutely. so you must <laughs> rush and book your tickets yes and it's and they're they're I mean I've big fan of literary festivals but the most marvellous thing is being in a room full of like-minded people and then you can go and chat to the author I mean it's just fantastic and get your book yes. signed and yeah. definitely worth doing anyway the sun is shining at the moment and extinction rebellion are out in force in London and we've been having some strange weather haven't we we've had this really hot well some some places like um, America and uh, and Europe are having it really hot and then ferocious yes flash floods so it's time to start considering this amazing world that we live in and i'm not i'm surprised that julie and i we haven't done this before but we're going to have a look at some great books about the natural world that we can recommend to you and i'm going to start this off because i the first book i've chosen is actually a classic he's our um the father of uh ecology i would say and it's the book is uh written in the 1770s and it's the natural history of selborne by the reverend gilbert white mm. so last year was a 300th anniversary of his birth and um, he's a pioneering uh, naturalist and whose work has been credited with establishing ecology and natural science as we know it 
And wow. last week I was on holiday in Ipswich, of all places. In fact, ah. no, I was, I was lying totally. I was in you, Norwich. But you anyway, told me it was Norwich. <laughs> I was in this brilliant antiquarian bookshop and I was lucky enough to spot and purchase a beautiful edition of this book. The drawings are by John Piper and it's got this beautiful modern uh, fine leather binding that's, that's been done. So the book was republished by the Folio Society and then it was taken up by this bindery to create this amazing cover. Um, so I was very pleased about that. Uh, uh, buying that. So the Natural History and Antiquities of Selborne, to give it its full title, is best known as it began with a correspondence between uh, Gilbert White and other like-minded gentlemen of the time. So it was ah, actually the guy right. who was um, very heavily involved in the Royal Society. And they were just discussing their observations and theories about local flora, fauna and wildlife. So let me just read you a little bit, uh, or in fact, Julian, uh, to read you a little bit about the book. The Natural History of Selborne by Gilbert White. Letter 24. Selborne, August 15th, 1775. Dear Sir, there is a wonderful spirit of sociality in the brute creation, independent of sexual attachment. The congregating of gregarious birds in the winter is a remarkable instance. Many horses, though quiet with company, will not stay one minute in a field by themselves. The strongest fences cannot restrain them. My neighbour's horse will not not only stay by himself abroad, but he will not bear to be left alone in a strange stable without discovering the utmost impatience and endeavouring to break the rack and manger with his forefeet. He has been known to leap out of a stable window through which dung was thrown after company, and yet in other respects is remarkably quiet. Oxen and cows will not fatten by themselves, but will neglect the finest pastures that is not recommended by society. It will be needless to instance in sheep which constantly flock together. But this propensity seems not to be confined to animals of the same species, for we know a doe still alive that was brought up from a little fawn with a dairy of cows, and with them it goes afield and with them it returns to the yard. The dogs of the house take no notice of this dear, being used to her, but if strange dogs come by, a chase ensues, while the master smiles to see his favourites securely leading her pursuers over hedge or gate or stile till she returns to the cows, who, with fierce lowings and menacing horns, drive the assailants quite out of the pasture. Even great disparity of kind and size does not always prevent social advance and mutual fellowship. For a very intelligent and observant person has observed me that, in the former part of his life, keeping but one horse, he happened also on a time to have but one solitary hen. These two incongruous animals spent much of their time together in a lonely orchard, where they saw no creature but themselves. By degrees an apparent regard began to take place between these two sequestered individuals. The fowl would approach the quadruped with notes of complacency, rubbing herself gently against his legs, while the horse would look down with satisfaction and move with great caution and circumspection, lest he should trample on his diminutive companion. 
Thus, by mutual good offices, each seemed to console the vacant hours of the other. So that Milton, when he puts the following sentiment in the mouth of Adam, seems to be somewhat mistaken. Much less can bird with beast, or fish with fowl, so well converse, nor with the ox the ape. There you are. Animals want to be together. And I think we all found during COVID that we are all exactly the same. We're all social animals, aren't we? Very so, very social. Yes. So Gilbert White was living during really exciting time of the Enlightenment, which is a mm. period in our history when there was this huge interest, this surge in interest into inquiry and knowledge. And it led to a massive number of societies being started up that encouraged investigation. And Reverend Gil- Gilbert White was very much a part of that. So he was an amateur. There was no such thing as sort of professional ecologists or anthropologists or anything mm-hmm. at that time. Right, yes. And it was all about if you can measure and describe something, then that will actually help you understand it. And in fact, I think that's something that we need to do now today is actually realise in order to look at our environment to see... Um, how we can help various species we actually need to understand where we are at the moment in terms mm, of yes. what we've lost <clears throat> I agree. Um, so anyway so um, he was a keen gardener and uh, actually he was the first person in his area to grow potatoes which Ooh, is gosh. just amazing isn't it and um it was this sort of inquiring interest in gardening that led him to his first written work, where he recorded methodically what he sowed and he reaped, and what the weather was like and the temperature and all other details. And this went on to call to be called his garden calendar. And um, up until White, uh, naturalists used to look at dead specimens to uh, to. To, to study and White believed in studying living birds and animals in their natural habitat which is a really unusual approach at the time and uh, therefore he was the first to distinguish various bird calls like the chiff chaff and the willow warbler and the wood warbler as three separate species just ah. basically on the basis of their different songs so he was Gosh. an amazing amazing guy and uh, the book was published in 1789, which was just four years before his death. Ah, um, right. His brother was a publisher, so I think he took it upon himself to, uh, to publish this. But since then, it's never been out of print, and it's reported to be one of the most published books in the English language, as well as being translated into several other languages. And I think there's never just been a greater need to follow in the footsteps of our first ecologists than today. Uh, we need to get out, we need to record our wildlife, and we need to share those findings. Um, and, that, and that data is critical to understanding how populations and distributions are adapting to, uh, to this rapidly changing world. Absolutely, absolutely agree. And just a couple of observations that yeah. I think are quite interesting. So uh, he was the first to grow potatoes in this area. I wonder if he was the first man to invent chips. Or crisps. Yeah, well, yes. And also, or it was very gin. interesting. Or what? Gin. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yes. Potato gin. That'd be nice. But also, it's interesting that he is spelled calendar with a K. Yes. Yeah. Um, and wouldn't it be nice if, if the copyright could extend 300 years? Just think of his family. Crikey, they'd be in clover. <laughs> Crikey, Moses. I, I think the, 17, the 1800s, 1700s, 1800s was really lovely because spelling didn't matter. No, that's right. It was, it was a bit of a movable feast, <laughs> it wasn't was it? It was indeed. 
Well, on the natural world, I've chosen um, uh, a, a something slightly different, whereas, whereas the Reverend White was looking at, uh, at, at birds and, and animals. I've chosen uh, The Body, A Guide for Occupants by Bill Bryson. Oh, I love uh, which, Bill Bryson. <clears throat> he's fantastic, isn't he? And this was published by Black Swan uh, last year in the summer. And uh, Bill is, is probably better known for his hilarious travel books, especially those about Britain, wherein we discover uh, then a young Americans developing understanding and love of these islands. However, uh, Bill had written, has written some weighty tomes of popular science, and the body is the latest in these works. So I've, um, I've read all his sort of round Britain and his travel logs, so, mm. which are very funny. So are these... Uh, non-fiction books humorous in any way well uh, indeed yes because i was just going to say oh, though, though he uh, writes these science books he does it with his customary wit and his easy style um so yes you've got the little twists um, uh, 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 the, the bill style coming of which i'll give you an example in a moment but i would say that you must be prepared for the long haul because he crams so much into his works um on the science and in my opinion it's best to tackle um, the book in easy stages do a chapter and then maybe put it aside for example the body is 448 pages in length Ooh, wow. excluding the yeah excluding the photographic plates notes on sources and extensive index but taking the whole lot into consideration it comes at 532 pages plus the eight pages <laughs> of photographs that's quite so it's detail massive. yeah it's massive <laughs> i mean it really is uh, but in the body um uh, bill bryson covers everything and i mean everything so he starts off with how to build a human before dissecting us step by step from my head brain, skin, hair, head, throat, heart, blood, lungs, immune system, guts, nerves, pain, nether regions, and much, much more. And the detail uh, of the science is fascinating, and this is where his, um, uh, his humour comes in. For example, uh, when discussing the brain, um, Bill tells us that the brain takes a long time to fully develop, so much so that a teenager's brain is only 80% complete, which, he wryly says, may not come as a great surprise to parents of teenagers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Actually, I was reading the other day that the reason why uh, armies are quite young <clears throat> is <throat> because teenagers brain doesn't um form um mm -hmm. solidly until i think it's about 25 yes so that's that about means the age. that yeah. the pain they don't fear feel fear and, right and therefore uh they're absolutely perfect for being told to go off into these and be shot at yeah yeah these mm. mad conditions yeah absolutely yeah. Um, again, and going on, whilst he's talking about the digestive system, um, which is a chapter um, which he calls down the, the hatch, we get to learn about Henry Heimlich, um, who invented the Heimlich manoeuvre, oh, yes. um, which was to dislodge an obstruction in the victim's throat. Now, Henry died in, a, in New York at the age of 96, but was, that was not before he saved the life of a woman in his nursing home with his own manoeuvre shortly before his own death. And that apparently was the first time he ever saved somebody life with his own manoeuvre. He'd invented it and obviously knew what to do, but he'd never been called to save somebody's life Brilliant. before then. Isn't that know, amazing? Do you know you can do it yourself? You can have a, a self... Really? Yeah, so if you're on your own and you've got something choked at the back of your... Yes. Um, so obviously the idea is in the Heimlich manoeuvre that somebody comes round you and yes. presses. Well, you uh, yes. can sort of 
put yeah. run, run your hands around you and mm. press really hard as well. It's worth a try anyway. Oh, right. Oh, gosh. Oh, well, that'd be useful. That's one of those things I always think, crikey, you know, if I'm on my own, what happens? Yes. However, let's go on to something else, which is, but equally a bit slightly gloomy in a way, I suppose. But similarly, um, there's a well-known medical name also comes to life uh, due to Bill, and that's of Alois Alzheimer, uh, a Bavarian pathologist and psychiatrist who mm-hmm. in 1906 delivered a lecture on pre-senile dementia, having diagnosed the condition in his patient, Augusta Dita. After her death, Dr. Alzheimer discovered that her brain was riddled with destroyed cells and the condition became known as Alzheimer's disease. Wow, in 1906. That's in incredible. 1906. Yeah, but isn't it interesting? I don't know if you remember. I mean, when we when we were younger, so I, I only seem to recall that the term Alzheimer's only sort of came into currency over here in the 80s because beforehand people used to say it was pre-senile dementia and that's what they used to say and I think it came more so because it was widely acknowledged in America it was Alzheimer's disease Uh, right yeah and 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 as a result I always thought it was an American doctor that that had um, that had formed the theory but no he was a Bavarian Great. Well, I always think that that amazing um, COVID vaccine that we created in Mm. nine months or so, you just think if all that focus could be put on something like Alzheimer's, we'd be able to find a resolution. Um, well, and that, Heather, you've just given me another super link. Oh, because go if you think all treatments and cures come about from perfection at the very first go, then reading the piece about two Canadian GPs, Banting and Best, who discovered insulin, will disabuse you of that notion. Frederick Banting started off uh, his quest with, would you believe, little knowledge at all about diabetes. He knew practically nothing. And he had no experience of medical research, but he had an idea which he thought was worth pursuing. And along with his assistant, Charles Best, who, like Banting, knew very little about diabetes and even less about experimental methods, experimented with dogs, basically by tying off the pancreas and then extracting the the insulin from there. Um, Their discovery has saved millions of lives worldwide. And, you know, when you, they, people say you're only um, how many handshakes away from somebody famous? Oh, yes, six. Yes, six, is it? Well, I'm not far from um, Sir Frederick Banting because my auntie Maya yes. met his widow, Lady Banting, in Toronto in the 1960s. Wow. So you've yes. shaken the hand, or cuddled anyway, the yeah, person. Yeah, Auntie Maya, <laughs> who had shaken the hands of Lady Banting, who was married to Sir Frederick Banting. And that was the result of that, was because um, our, I think she was the second cousin, um, Hilda Roberts was uh, a doctor at the Ladies' Hospital in Toronto. And that was the link, and my aunt Brilliant. went out to visit her. Excellent. Yeah. Now, I could um, devote a whole program to this book because it's just crammed with so many interesting facts and such a parade of interesting characters from the, the famous names of her to the less well-known he- heroes and heroines so in the it sounds world. a great book it is absolutely is and on top of that bill bryson is no slouch in the brain box department himself as far as i've found out i think he holds two doctorates in his own right okay but has nine honorary doctorates right and they're just what as else? good yeah yeah what else for a great man as well well yeah. done so my second book totally different i've gone back into the world but not animals and birds this time we're doing insects so we've done animal birds people and now we're doing insects and the book is called silent earth averting the insect apocalypse by dave goulson so i'm 
really say I was a fan of insects, but this book has definitely changed my mind about what to do when a fly enters the house. So now instead of killing it, I'm definitely capturing it and allowing it to escape. So it's made that big an impact on me. So Dale Goulson is a big fan of bumblebees. So I've always done that with bumblebees anyway. But anyway, I've now expanded it to other flying things in the house but his book goes wider and he's on a mission to persuade humans to respect insect life so he estimates that there are over five million different species of insects in the world but we've only ever been able to identify so far just 20 percent of them good grief so just imagine what magic and knowledge and information is out there that mm. we can learn from part of the planet's ecosystem Yes. Uh, so we're a long way from finding out what these uh, what the insects do, but um, it's clear that the unsustainable exploitation of the Earth's finite resources has led to a, a frightening collapse of insects in terms of density and also species mm-hmm. richness. And um, I was just saying before that we've just come back from Norwich, and I remember when I was a child, we'd go on holiday, and the car would just be covered with all the insects that had been mm. splattered on the, yeah, windscreen on the windscreen and the yeah. uh, and on the lights. Mm. And of course, we've done this journey, which must be what three hundred miles or mm. so, and there's practically nothing, nothing on, on the yeah. car now. I know. Um, so that's that's quite shocking, really. Um, and it presumably it's habit, habit loss, um, pesticides, climate change, light pollution, or possibly even unidentified reasons. But no doubt humans are going to be responsible for all of those. Um, mm. So obviously bumblebees we all like. So bumblebees specifically, the geographical area I found out. Of, so the geographical area of Britain, which the great yellow bumblebee could be found has decreased by 95%. Good grief. Um, And there's been a decline between 1970 and 2012. There's been an estimated decline in the region of 44 million wild birds uh, because of loss of insects from which they feed. Oh, I see, yes. So that that would make sense. Yeah, and it just really reinforces how important insects are Mm, to mm. the whole chain of which we Mm. belong. Mm, um, exactly. yes. So I think one of the key problems is the ignorance of natural history among school children. And mm-hmm. I'm probably going to extend that and say teachers and educationalists as well. Because do you remember just a couple of years ago, the Oxford Junior Dictionary um, deleted words such as acorn and moss and conquer and bluebell and clover and magpie and cauliflower. They deleted really? these words from the Oxford Junior Dictionary because they felt nobody knew them, nobody used them. Well, anymore. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Because we go, so how would they ever learn? So you, you just sort of deleted knowledge. Yeah. That, so, so that's really bright, Oxford University Press, well, really I, bright of you. But I suppose that you've only got, you know, it's got to be a size and mm. new words are coming in all the time. So there are always going to be words that drop out. Um, yeah. But obviously, you know, we just uh, need to use these words more. We need to get out into the countryside. Well, that's so, true. Or just make several volumes of the dictionary. <laughs> so Silent Earth is 
full of engaging descriptions of amazing insects I've never heard of, but plenty of practical suggestions for greening up our towns, our gardens, and even our window um, sills. So and it's brilliant. It's not just brilliant for sort of older members of society mm. who've got time to volunteer for ecological good causes. Mm. It's also great for youngsters who want to understand the planet and their place in it. So really brilliant recommendation. And it really sounds fantastic. And uh, just to let you know, um, the lavender outside my house is uh, awash with bumblebees, which I'm really pleased to tell you. From your own hive? No, 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 the bumblebees. Uh I've got the hive at the back, Uh so so the girls are busy making the honey. Because bumblebees bumblebees don't make honey, Uh and they're solitary solitary, um, solitary bees. They don't live in a hive, but they're essential for pollinating. Right. My my messy garden in the front that people have made a comment. I like it as well because it, the insects love it. So I'm doing my bit. Well done. <laughs> well, my second book um, is uh, the the Baffoot Beagles by Gerald Dorrell. Uh, but to introduce it, I've done a little bit of a reading beforehand. Okay, let's go. The Baffoot Beagles by Gerald Dorrell, Chapter One: Toads and Dancing Monkeys. Most West African lorries are not in what one would call the first flush of youth, and I had learned by bitter experience not to expect anything very much of them. But the lorry that arrived to take me up the mountains was worse than anything I'd seen before. It tottered on the borders of senile decay. It stood there on buckled wheels, wheezing and gasping with exhaustion from having to climb up the gentle slope to the camp, and I consigned myself and my loads to it with some trepidation. The driver, who was a cheerful fellow, pointed out that he would require my assistance in two very necessary operations. First, I had to keep the handbrake pressed down when travelling downhill, for unless it was held thus, almost level with the floor, it sullenly refused to function. Secondly, I had to keep a stern eye on the clutch, a willful piece of mechanism that seized every chance to leap out of its socket with a noise like a strangling leopard. As it was obvious that not even a West African lorry driver could be successful in driving while crouched under the dashboard in a prenatal position, I had to take over control of these instruments if I valued my life. So while I ducked at intervals to put on the brake amid the rich smell of burning rubber, our noble lorry jerked its way towards the mountains at a steady 20 miles per hour. Sometimes, when a downward slope favoured it, it threw caution to the winds and careered along in a madcap fashion at twenty-five. For the first thirty miles, the red earth road wound its way through the lowland forest, the giant trees standing in solid ranks alongside, and their branches entwined in an archway of leaves above us. Flocks of hornbills flapped across the road, honking like the ghosts of ancient taxis, and on the banks, draped decoratively in the patches of sunlight, the agama lizards lay, blushing into sunset colouring with excitement and nodding their heads furiously. Slowly and almost imperceptibly, the road started to climb upwards, looping its way in languid curves round the forested hills. In the back of the lorry, the boys lifted up their voices in song. Home again, home again, when shall I see my home? When shall I see my mammy? I'll never forget my home. The driver hummed the refrain softly to himself, glancing at me to see if I would object. 
to his surprise, I joined in, and so while the lorry rolled onwards, trailing a swirling tail of red dust behind it, the boys in the back maintained the chorus, while the driver and I harmonised and sang complicated twiddly bits, and the driver played a staccato accompaniment on the horns. You're right, you're mute again, Julian. <laughs> I mean, yes, I'm sitting in my old world mute here. There we are. The pleasures I think most of people doing think a... it's better that way. <laughs> so that was a little bit of a taste of the uh, Baffle Beagles from Gerald Durrell. Um, and this, and it's, uh, it, it recounts um, Gerald's second expedition to what was then the British Cameroons, which is now Cameroon, which was in 1949. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. And it was his third book about his travels, collecting sev- uh, animals for several British Jews, including London, Chester, Paynton and Bristol. Um, now, Gerald Durrell, of course, is better known for his autobiographical works, My Family and Other Animals, which we previously yes. uh, discussed on this yeah. programme, and Birds, Beasts and Relatives, which were both published afterwards, which was 1956 and 69, respectively. However, his early works, including this one, The Baffert Beagles, have all the same hallmarks of humour and wit and can be found in his family series. Brilliant. So um, I didn't know he'd actually done any travelled over oh god in fact actually i mean his 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 collection of travel books is amazing um catch me a color bus zoo in my luggage uh the Bafoot beagles and yes, he's he's course. written i mean he's known really for his two famous ones yes. um the family ones but his his um, natural history ones um are, are are extensive and they're all written with the same sort of humor Excellent. um so it's so it's really good deserve a um, better a better knowledge Yes, and, and, and it's also very interesting because he does, he does give you quite a lot of interesting information about the animals. Um, and, for example, he decided he was going to, to go to... Um, so he's in the, in the Cameroons. And uh, they set up a, 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 a base in Manfi, but he wanted to go into the, uh, into the grasslands uh, where he knew that there was going to be more exotic species. But he wasn't, which, wasn't sure which part of the grasslands he was going to go. So he went to the district officer to ask his advice, whereupon the, D, the DO pulled out a map and poured over and pointed to him and said, uh, uh, go, you, you should go to Baffert. Uh, and then he gave a piece of advice and said, no, the one person you should concern yourself is, uh, and you should meet, is the Fon, saying, um, get him on your side and the people will help you all they can. Now, the Fon was the king of that area. Right. So with that advice, he writes a letter to the Fon with a lubricating letter, um, and the lubrication being a bottle of gin, um, produced a, a, a letter of welcome saying, "Come, do come, and come and stay in one of the houses in my compound. So anyway, he arrives and goes off with his trusty team of hunters and a pack of Mongol dogs, which he calls the Bafut Beagles, and he pursues his quarry with great enthusiasm. Oh, I was going to and ask he, you what a Bafut Beagle was. Yeah, so he's just, <laughs> and he's just created this name for the, for the, for, for, for the guys that were hunting with him and and the dogs themselves and those were his beagles beagles are great hunters of course um and he actually in in this he got a galago now i don't know if you know what a galago is no i don't it's a bush baby a type of bush baby a hairy frog an african golden cat um a flying mouse and a monkey so small it could fit into a teacup and that was part of his collections wow um and um but it's really interesting because all of the fauna is referred to by the hunters as beef, regardless of whatever it is. So it's just beef. They're going to look for beef for him. Um, and all of the speeches in Pigeon English, which it keeps you working hard throughout the book because you have to keep up with it. Um, and uh, here's an example, which is in the course of one of the hunts, when one of the Africans had got bitten, um, Jerry inquired, said, you know, Sabi, what kind of beef? No, sir, he said aggrievedly. I know, sir, um, see, um, I go come for this place 
and I see that hole. I think something there go be beef for inside. So I done put my hand for there. Then this beef, he done chop me. And, and that's the style of the, the speech. And it is literally, that's how they communicated in their English, which is the pidgin English. And um, did and he the, have any of their local language? Pardon? Did he have any of the local no, language? No, that, that was, the, no, he did. Because uh, I, I, I think, again, because it was all tribal, because you had Hausa oh, so and you had languages. all the different tribes. Right. So interestingly, the pidgin English um, was the unifying language um, in, in its own way. Yes. And of course, and, and it was easily adaptable. Yeah. Um, and uh, and even the Fon himself, who 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 pretended that he couldn't speak pigeon English, yeah. but of course he does. Does and they got on very well. And he was a very colourful character. I mean, he would wear this amazing um, uh, hat with 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 um, actually with all these what looked like spikes, but they were actually the hairs from the tails of elephants that oh, they were quite. Yes, they were quite spiky. And so that, that would create his hat. So it was looked a bit like a conical um, uh, shape on his head with yes. these individual... And they would stand rigid, um, these hairs. Incredible. That's but he rather, liked, uh, he rather liked his gin, did the fawn, um, and all sorts of drinks. And he was going to... He'd invited Jerry to, to the grass festival where he, uh, he offers Jerry some neat gin, which Jerry described as tasting not unlike one of the finest brands of paraffin. Uh, <laughs> and then asked if he would like beaters to go with it, which turned out to be Angostura bitters. Uh, having declared... And even the fond declares the gin's a bit too strong. So he says, uh, come back to my house and we'll drink white horse, as he called it, white horse whiskey. Uh, and heavily lubricated, the pair of them totter off back into the crowd with all of the people because the farm would throw this every year because they they bring the grass in so they could rethatch um all the houses and the fawn taught him how to dance the local dances and in return jerry teaches him the conga right. um so so it's a really good book um <clears throat> pardon me now, I'm not sure if it's still in print. Um, it was published by Penguin. Um, so it, if you do a search, you may find it. Otherwise, it would be uh, in the secondhand market. Right. Isn't it amazing what you learn from books? That's yeah, what I love exactly. about yeah. books. Yeah. In any subject in the world, you'll be able to find something that is yeah. just amazing and yeah. astounds you. So that's yeah. fantastic that um, elephant hair on the tail yes. yeah. um, stands up and is solid. So what Absolutely. do you think about zoos? Do you think that's a good idea to bring animals back? Well, Conservation I, 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 and... Well, it, well it, it, it's mixed, isn't it? Because um, you've, got, you, you've got people say, oh, zoos are, you know, it, 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 they're, not so, they're not such good places. But then again, if we don't have zoos, what happens when, because we, 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 we seem to be unable to eradicate hunters. And for example, people going out to Africa, I mean, again, just recently, there's an American that's just gone out and shot a lion, um, which was actually quite a well-known lion. I mean, uh, what yeah. possesses people? You know, they're still killing the elephants. So is it a case of we just think it's better to have all the elephants slaughtered in the wild or do we keep some examples in zoos? That's um, exactly actually right from the beginning, mm. going back to the natural history of Selborne. It's one mm. of the comments that Gilbert White makes is that, that man is always a hunter. And yes. in this instance, he was talking about hunting of deer in the, right. um, in the forest near, um, near where he lived, near Selborne. Mm. Um, but of course, it's the world over, isn't it? Well, it is. But I suppose in that time they 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 killed the deer to eat but nobody's eating the lion nobody's no, eating the elephant no, and that's that's absolutely. it isn't it 
So our hour is almost up. Wow. Loo. Not again, is it? So a very big thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. And thanks also to Harriet Reed Ryan, the programme director of the Henley Literary Festival. I thoroughly recommend the festival to you. It's going to be fantastic. There's 130 sessions, so there's guaranteed to be something that is for you to enjoy so you can download yeah it really is you can download the program and book your tickets by going to their website which is henleyliteraryfestival.co.uk super so books that we've been recommending today are oh yes indeed we have um the worst witch by jill murphy jane's patisserie by jane dunn published by ebury Natural History of Selborne by uh, Gilbert White, published by Penguin. The Body by Bill Bryson, published by Black Swan. Barefoot Beagles by Gerald Dorrell, published by Penguin Books. Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse by Dave Goulson, published by Jonathan Cape. The Vaxers by Sarah Gilbert and Catherine Green, published by Hodder. And next week, we'll be chatting with Richard Ingrams, who you might know as the uh, editor, the previous editor of uh, Private Eye and The Oldie. And he's just had his latest book published um, by uh, G.K. Chesterton. Um, So that'll be good. We look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11 and 12 noon on River Radio. And if you're not able to join us then, then you can listen again directly from either the website or Turning Pages on River Radio is also available as a podcast. We look forward to you joining us then. Bye-bye.